Well, hopefully you marked your place ahead of time in John chapter 14. If you'll go ahead and open there now. My sermon's going to be from uh, verses 1 through 3. If you have a bulletin, it probably says 1 through 14. That's fake news. Uh, actually, that's, that's truth in journalism. That's reported just exactly the way I told it. Um, but I, uh, I decided just to... Uh, linger here and sort of remain in verses one through three today. I thought about the fact that maybe you've been uh, for a walk somewhere through the woods or whatever in a natural setting and just walk through a place where when the wind blows right, there's just a fragrant smell that you, you pause and just wait for it to return. And I think there is something so precious here in verses one through three for us. And so deeply helpful that we need to remain there in order to smell the fragrance of it. And so uh, John chapter 14, verses one through three, I've simply titled this, Let Not Your Hearts Be Troubled. I'm gonna ask you if you're able to stand and honor the reading of God's word as we just Give reverence to him and his authority and attentiveness to his voice in the scriptures. Listen to the word of the Lord. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again And will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you for revealing yourself to us. Truth about yourself and about ourselves and about the world we're a part of. Truth about how we estranged from you by our own choice may be reconciled to you. Thank you, Lord, for the revelation of that truth. And we open it now, as always, with the expectation you have something to say to us specifically, individually, corporately, through it. So we open our ears and hearts to receive and ask that you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory and our good. And God, I pray that you'd move me out of the way as you're faithful to do and use my voice as your instrument today. In Christ's name and for his sake, amen. You may be seated. Well, for students of the Bible, this is a very familiar passage um, and, and a very comforting one. In fact, this is a one that frequently read at funerals um, in minister's manuals and that kind of thing as a frequent uh, funeral passage because of the hope it offers for the one who has passed on in Christ. There's this reminder that there's a place prepared for them. But this isn't written to the person or isn't the, these words weren't spoken to the person Uh, who has just passed on. 
It's spoken actually to the disciples of Jesus who are getting ready to be left behind as it were as Jesus passes on. The next morning, he'll be hanging on a cross. But chances are this passage that is so familiar to students of the Bible, we've always read as the beginning of kind of a new thought because there's a ch- it begins a new chapter We open it and we begin reading at verse 1 as if this is a new thought and even a new scene, as it were, in the story. But this isn't a new thought or a new scene. It's a continuation of what was transpiring in chapter 13. We were there last week and actually in the, in, uh, the week before as well. If you were here last week, you may recall that in the previous passage, after having washed his disciples' feet, Jesus announces to them that one of his disciples would betray him. Then he says, I'll only be with you a little while longer. And where I'm going, you can't go with me. And then he says, Peter would deny him. So think about how dinner just changed. I mean, however festive they imagined this feast being like that just got turned upside down all of a sudden they they don't really even know fully what that means as I said they probably can't imagine the scene that's going to unfold by the time the sun rises the next morning they can't imagine even just hours from then in the middle of the night how just chaos will transpire right in their midst and Jesus will be carried away to this trial overnight. They, they can't really imagine that, but they know something is taking a left turn here that Jesus is talking about. And, and imagine being those men sitting there who had left their homes, their families, their livelihoods to follow Jesus. Their, their whole purpose in life is wrapped up in who he is and what he's about, this cause, as it were. The, the going about and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, they've, they've given up everything for that purpose. Life doesn't really even make sense without him in it. In fact, I, I can imagine of the 12 of the disciples, surely at least one of them had one family member who told them they were crazy. Right? I mean, you've probably been called that for less, less than having left everything to follow Jesus. Maybe some of you have been called that for following Jesus. But their life doesn't really even make sense without him. Their whole purpose and sort of identity is wrapped around being disciples of Jesus. And now he says, I'm leaving and you can't come with me. And, 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 and perhaps they imagine, well, at least we have each other, right? Not really. Not in the way you've known each other because one is a traitor sitting right there at the table at that moment. And Peter is going to deny him. Peter, Captain Courageous. You know, Mr. Boldman, he's like, he's like captain of the discipleship team, you know? All-American MVP disciple. And he's going to deny Jesus. 
Now that's the setting. And Jesus says, the very next thing he says is, let not your hearts be troubled. And you can imagine if, I mean, you don't, maybe don't even have to imagine if anybody except Jesus said that. That might even be outright offensive. Right? You know when you are really troubled, anxious, and worried about something, and somebody says, don't worry. Like that's the least helpful thing anybody could say. And they might even quote Bible verses to you about why you shouldn't worry. And it's still unhelpful, even though it's true, right? I mean, you know that feeling in that moment where if somebody else besides Jesus were to say to you, let not your heart be troubled. You would go, what do you mean, let not? It's not like I gave my heart commandment, instructions to be troubled. If my heart would listen to me, my heart would be calm all the time. My heart just has a mind of its own. It does its own thing. Can't even settle it down. But it's not just anybody saying it, is it? It's Jesus saying, let not your hearts be troubled. But in circumstances like those, that he spoke those in, in circumstances like the ones that had just preceded that statement of their whole world getting ready to be turned upside down, how in the world is anybody supposed to not let their hearts be troubled? I want to bring that question to the text today as we reflect just on these few verses and, and see, consider, number one, the nature and sources of a troubled heart, first of all. And then secondly, the help and hope for a troubled heart. I think we get some insight into both of those here. First, the nature and sources of a troubled heart. Well, a troubled heart, in, one, in, a, in a certain respect, doesn't need any definition. We all kind of know it from experience to a certain degree, right? It is uh, one characterized by distress, danger, or need. And those probably sum it up pretty generally. But this word that's translated troubled here in the scriptures is also used to describe troubled waters. Waters that have been stirred up or agitated. We might think of the pool of Bethesda where there's a man sitting there and that an angel would come and stir up the waters as one example of this, this sort of picture. Agitated, stirred up. The word is used to speak of crowds that have become disturbed and unsettled. The verb form of that word can also mean to shake together. Does that, does that get us somewhere close to really understanding and appreciating the nature of a troubled heart? When you're distressed... Do you ever feel like your, your inner person is shaking? Do you know that feeling where it just feels, you can almost feel that like there's something physiological going, inside, uh, going on inside of you, that something of your inner person is just trembling and tremoring. That's not a bad picture to associate with a troubled heart. And so having a troubled heart is really the opposite of having inner peace and security. And this is what Jesus is 
exhorting us to. Let not your heart be troubled in that way. So that, that, that means that the source or sources of a troubled heart really are all those things that disturb our sense of peace and security. For the disciples, you can see immediately some of what that would have been. That there's this, their, their whole sense of purpose and direction in life is getting ready to be upended because so much of it is attached to him, Jesus, and his kingdom ministry, his kingdom calling. But there's a threat of danger to themselves, of course, potentially. You wouldn't imagine necessarily that if authorities come calling for Jesus, that somehow they're just going to be exempt. There would be a threat of danger and so forth. Certainly uncertainty. Certainly uncertainty. <laughs> About the future. Well, again, that sort of that, that doesn't say that, that that doesn't say everything uh, about what troubles us, but that encompasses a whole lot, doesn't it? That when we feel threats of danger or pain, when we have a sense of uncertainty about the future, the future is actually always uncertain, isn't it? And this actually, that gives us a little bit of insight into our own hearts. Because a lot of the source of a troubled heart is when we presume that we know more about the future than we do. Or, and or, that we have some control over how it unfolds. That we have a picture of how we think it's going to be. Or a, a picture of how we imagine we want it to be. How it ought to be. And that somehow we can make it take shape that way. And when that is threatened or disrupted. It makes us shake inside. It's a source of all kinds of trouble. In our hearts. Sense of uncertainty. And then. Another would be just a lack of belonging. One of, the, one of the things that is the source of a lot of anxiety um, is, again, a lack of belonging or a threat to our sense of belonging. That is, so much of who we are and what life is about is, is wrapped up in our relationships. Or the life that we want, we want to be wrapped up in relationships, but we can't seem to find our place. I mean, there are some people like that who just, they lack a sense of belonging. They want to belong, but feel like they don't. Others find a place where we belong, but then in some ways, that's disrupted and it turned upside down in all kinds of ways uh, where that's, in a sense, taken away from us. Divorce, family turmoil, church conflict, job layoffs, all those places where uh, you've had deep, uh, tightly woven, interconnected relationships with people, your sense of belonging is wrapped up there and through whatever kind of conflict or turmoil, that's upended. Those are all sources of 
a troubled heart. And see, part of what that reveals again is that every human being has a sense that the world is not how it ought to be. You know, I've said this a couple of times before, but it's, it's really fundamental. Everybody does. You don't have to be Christian or even religious to believe that this is not how the world ought to be. We've got a sense of some picture of how it ought to be and some sense of obligation on the part of ourselves or others to try to make it that way. It's, again, sort of the, the, the ground of all kinds of conflict and argument and all that kind of thing um, in the world. We have a sense, though, that something's not right about the world. And we also have a sense of what a world would be like where there's not all the source of this trouble, not all the source of uh, the threats of danger or pain, insecurity, uncertainty, a lack of belonging or having a place. And we actually long for a world where all of that is made right and whole. And that's exactly what Jesus is promising. That's the nature and sources of a troubled heart. But then he offers help and hope for a troubled heart. Because again, the question is, how is it possible that under those circumstances that anybody could not let their heart be troubled. How is that even possible? Well, he grounds hope and help for us in a command and two promises. There's really probably more than two promises there, but I want to highlight these two in particular. But the command is believe in God and believe in me. In your translation, it may say, you believe in God, believe also in me. Actually, in the original text here, it can be uh, stated either way. Both of those could be imperatives uh, or one or the other could be. Either one of those is possibly grammatically, but, but possible grammatically, but either way, Jesus is saying, trust me. Trust me. Ground your confidence in me. Now, I, I, I want to say again, um, this is one of those messages that we're at risk of missing because we've heard it so many times, right? Like, in other words, it's, you know, the, the Sunday school answer is Jesus. And so, like, he's the answer here, and we're, we're likely to go, yeah, yeah, let's wrap it up, buddy, because I want to get ahead of the crowd for the Mother's Day lunch. Heard this one already. But see, chances are we've missed it already. Because even though he says that, ground your confidence in me. Our problem fundamentally is we ground it in all kinds of other places. The reason we get so unsettled with all kinds of things in life is because of the peace that we seek there, the security we seek there, the confidence that's rooted there. Expecting it to provide what it can't provide. And so Jesus is saying, the command is, Believe in me. Eyes on me, children. Believe in me. Trust in me. And then promise number one is that in the Father's house are many rooms. 
and there's one for you. In my father's house are many rooms. I'm going to prepare one for you. There's a room for you. The King James and New King James versions say mansions instead of rooms. If you've been around for, uh, for a lot of decades of, of uh, hearing the sermons uh, here in the passage read in King James and songs sung about it, we use that word. Um, it's actually not a good translation, especially in modern English. Uh, there was a time perhaps in centuries past where there might have been multiple meanings of the word mansion, but the, the idea here is not to convey that everybody gets this big palatial house that everybody's got their individual mansion. The, the, the better translation of the word is just what we read here and what you will read in most modern translations, just rooms or possibly dwelling places. It would be um, used in a variety of ways, including a lot, a lot of times somebody uh, on a journey having a place to stop and a place to stay at an inn where there are lots of rooms or even at someone's house where there is uh, a room prepared for a guest to stay. That's sort of a, a, a good picture of it. Although no doubt the father's house is a nice one, you know, and a big one. And it is glorious and palatial and all of those kinds of things. But it is his house where there is a place made for us. In fact, I thought, you know, a more helpful picture uh, for us to sort of get our minds around that rather than our, ourselves uh, everybody having a mansion of their own is uh, kind of a scene from Downton Abbey when uh, a guest arrives in a carriage to, for a visit at Downton Abbey. If you haven't seen that sh any of those shows, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, but, you know, it could be a, a, a sort of a distant relative, maybe that the family hasn't even met before. They just know they're related to them, and they arrive in the carriage, and the staff goes out to greet them, let me take those bags for you. Uh, you could stay here in our room. We've got a room ready for you. you. There's nothing you need to do. It's all prepared for you. You're our guest. That's really a, a, a fair picture of that Jesus is going to prepare a place, a room for us in the Father's house. And, the, and the, the promise, the real assurance we're to take away from this is that there is a place for everybody who belongs to Jesus. There is no chance that your reservation is going to get canceled. No chance that they're overbooked or that they'll have to, you know, make a pallet for you on the floor. Get out the sleeping bag. And the air mattress. There's a place for you. It's a sure thing. He even says, if it weren't so, would I have told you? That's He's trying to drive home to his disciples. Listen, I promise you, there's a place for you and I'm going to prepare it. And then promise number two well, I guess you could say promise number two is actually I'll, I'm coming back for you. Uh, the, 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 the one I wanted to underscore 
is that you'll be where I am, Jesus says. I'm coming back for you, not just, not just to take you to this nice room that I'm preparing for you. I'm coming back for you that you can be where I am. Now, here's the question for you and me. Is that promise as comforting to us today as it's intended to be? Do we actually find comfort in the promise that the ultimate aim of all of this is that we could be with him? Does that strike us as good news, great news? Because I'm, I'm afraid that's one of those things, even, even though that we know that's true, and if we were asked a question on a quiz, we'd probably get it right whether we actually find that deeply encouraging, whether we actually find that to be a deep source of peace, even in the hour of uh, anxiety and trouble. It's another question, whether it's actually comforting to us. I I had a rather humorous illustration of this um, provided by my dog, Uh, even while I was while I was typing up my sermon notes, um, my little dog sort of illustrated this point in a couple of ways. I may have mentioned my dog to you before. He's a little uh, Shih Tzu. Um, he's uh, put on some weight recently, so he's up to ten pounds. Um, he's one of those dogs that I used to make fun of as not being a real dog. You know, that somehow he got classified as a dog as a technicality somehow. Like this would be the kind of dog that um, I didn't think of as a real dog. But uh, he is actually prone to a troubled heart, this little dog. He's a little bit anxious and there are things that scare him. Sizzling frying pans will make him tremble. Uh, The vacuum cleaner. And he's absolutely terrorized by the smoke alarm. The smoke alarm goes off. It just undoes him. We had the misfortune one day of having the smoke alarm just kind of freak out for reasons unbeknownst to us. Just went bad. And we had gone to work for the day and came home. Smoke alarm had gone off sometime early. And little Charlie had been there all day. He was quite undone. His little heart was very troubled. So yesterday, while I was, while I was typing up uh, my sermon notes, Monica had the vacuum cleaner out, and Charlie came running over to me and, and sort of reached up to me almost like a baby. He put his front paws on me, on my legs. I was sitting in a, a sort of a stool height uh, chair. He, he reached up, wanted me to pick him up, and so I did save him from the threat of danger from the vacuum cleaner and then the vacuum turned off. I put him back down and later she turned it back on. He came back over, (laughs) reached up again and I picked him up and then I put him back down. And then a little while later, it was totally quiet in the house. Nothing going on. And he came back over and reached up again and wanted me to pick him up. So I actually took my laptop over to a chair where he would have room to sit with me 
and he hopped up there and sat down beside me because he just wanted to be with me. Now, you have uh, pets that maybe do the same thing. My point is, uh, my dog probably understands this better than I do. The, the satisfaction, the enjoyment that there is to be found just being with the master. Not only to look to him for security when there's a threat of danger. Not only to look to him for peace and reassurance when there's unrest. But to look to him just for companionship, pleasure, satisfaction that can't be found anywhere else. That's the promise that Jesus makes. You'll be with me. Don't, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place, but I'm coming back. There is, there is a place for you. And where I am, you'll be also. That's where our heart is supposed to be redirected. That's where our meditations are supposed to be redirected, that we might ground our sense of confidence, hope, and satisfaction in him. I want to conclude here with just four kind of points of application that how do we really seek that sort of help? And how do, how do we do anything that moves us beyond uh, just having written down some Sunday school notes and sort of moved on to lunch? I'll, I'll offer four suggestions. One is uh, be still. I wonder if I did, okay, I wonder if I have them in the same order as there are up here. Be still, spend time with the Lord, and enjoy him. Be still, spend time with him. Both of those are already hard enough, right? Do you find it easy in life not to be still? In your default mode, go, 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 go. Be still, spend time with him, and enjoy him. You remember the Westminster Catechism that says man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our chief end, the, the chief purpose for which God made us is to glorify him and enjoy him forever. That's something we can practice now. Do you enjoy God? And again, I, I know the answer many times is, I mean, I don't like not enjoy, you know. But do I really sit in the presence of the Lord, commune with him in a way that, that gives me pleasure in and of itself. Not that he gives me things that bring me pleasure. 
Not that I schedule a short time with him on my way to pursuing things that I think are going to bring me pleasure. But that I seek it in him and find it in greater and greater measure. Be still, spend time with the Lord and enjoy him. Uh, Second, identify the people and things that provide you with a sense of peace and security. Actually, go ahead and unfold uh, number three and four all together here, two, three, and four. Because these really go together. Identify the people and things that provide you with a sense of peace and security. I would tell you, this is uh, an essential exercise of reflection because what, what happens is the things even, some of the things I mentioned before, there are all kinds of things in this world that are good, given for our good, but that we've, we've wrapped around them our own sense of, we've attached to them our peace and security. So we need to identify what those things are and what it is about people and about our job, our house, our income, our whatever it is on this earth that, we, uh, that are a sense of peace and security for us. Identify them and then acknowledge them as gracious gifts from God and thank him for them. The reason that is an important next step is because it's followed by offer them back to him. What, what I need to do, in other words, is to acknowledge the good things of this earth are good. And God has given them to us. They're good gifts from him. But I need to acknowledge them as gifts from him, thank him for, that, for them, and not let them become substitutes for him. And the pleasure I'm supposed to find from him. The joy I'm supposed to find from him. So I say, thank you for this, Lord. Um, Whenever you'd like it back, here it is. I'm not going to cling too tightly to the things that are gifts from you as if they belong to me. They're yours. And I'm yours, and you are enough. And that's an exercise probably that we need to go through routinely because we will find, especially, again, the the irony is, especially in a country like America, in in, uh, the developed world, where there is prosperity, provision of every sort, luxuries of many kinds. We have health insurance, car insurance, life insurance, any kind of insurance you're willing to pay for that would give us a sense of security, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We live a kind of life where we can actually ground our confidence in innumerable things of this world. And the sad irony is the more of them there are, the more they're threatened, the more things there are to be threatened and to feel threatened by. And there our troubled heart goes again, stirred up, agitated, and shaking. And so we say, Lord, thank you for them, but I don't need them. You're all I need. And so that, that, that ought to be our discipline, our exercise, our prayer 
until he makes it increasingly true that our hearts follow uh, what our mouths uh, say and our, and our feet and hands do. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we bless your name. We thank you, God, for the staggering truth that there's a place for us in your house because we who know Jesus and are known by him are family on a journey, as it were, who will arrive one day at your house and we'll be received. Not only will we have a room, but we'll be received as family. And that is hard to comprehend. It is so good. But we praise you for it. Lord, I pray for everyone here who even right now is beset by a troubled, tremoring, shaking heart, agitated by any number of things. God, I pray that you would just show yourself to them. Reveal in a personal way a glimpse of your beauty, of your goodness, and how really, really and personally deep satisfaction and enjoyment are to be found in you. Lord, I just pray you'd minister to each one according to our need and your desire to meet those needs and be glorified in us as you do in Jesus' name. Amen.